Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your creation. We thank you for the way that things have just come alive around us with the rain that you have sent to us. And Father, we praise you for that. Father, we thank you for this family that meets here. Father, for the love that we have for you, for your son, for the spirit, for the love that we have for each other. We pray, Father, that this morning as we spend this time together, we'll be drawn closer to you and closer to your son and closer to your spirit and also, Father, closer to each other. Father, our desire is to be more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that today as we look at another encounter that someone had with Jesus, that we'll use that to, to learn lessons for our lives so that we can become more like Jesus. Father, we pray this through his name, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So we've come to the end of our sermon series, Face to Face with Jesus. Over the last 10 weeks, we've explored a variety of face-to-face encounters that people have had with Jesus. And we've explored how those people's lives were impacted and changed by their encounters with Jesus. But more importantly, we've looked at what the implications are for us in our lives as we strive to be disciples of Jesus Christ, as we strive to follow Jesus at all times and in all places and in all circumstances. So there will never be any doubt in anybody's mind that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We started off the series by exploring the importance of identity and asking the question, who am I? And we learned from Peter's encounter with Jesus that who we say Jesus is determines who we are and very much determines what kind of life that we're going to live. And the next week we stood with John, the troublemaker, in the Jordan River as he baptized Jesus. And we saw the Spirit descend and we heard God's voice speak and we learned that John's message of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins is actually God's message. And it also should be our message as we come face to face with people who are around us in this world. And then we climbed on a roof with some men who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. And we learned that we're all paralyzed before God without the healing and forgiving presence of Jesus Christ. And we learned that we should be filling the role of those men on the roof and be bringing other people into the presence of Jesus Christ so they too can receive his healing and his forgiving. We then went with Jesus on a hurried trip from the shore of a lake to the bedside of a 12-year-old girl who was dying. And we saw that journey interrupted by a woman who had been suffering for 12 years as she reached out to Jesus for her healing. And we learned through the healing of that unclean woman and the restoration to life of the unclean girl, that Jesus' ministry is all about washing. It's all about cleansing, and it's all about restoration. Then in the next week, we crashed a dinner party where Jesus encountered two different debtors. He encountered Simon, who didn't recognize that he did have debts, and we encountered a notorious woman who did recognize that she was a debtor. And that woman taught us that the emotional, extravagant, and uncontrolled behavior that's inappropriate for a dinner party is exactly appropriate for those who come into the healing and forgiving presence of Jesus Christ. And then late one night, we listened as Nicodemus had a conversation, a confusing conversation with Jesus, a conversation about rebirth and about spirit and about water. And from that conversation, we learned that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus lives again to bring people like Nicodemus 
and to bring people like you and me out of the darkness of sin and into his light. And then we walked with Jesus into Samaria. And as Jesus talked with a thirsty woman at Jacob's well, we learned that ethnic and gender and religious and moral gaps between us and others should never prevent the offer of Jesus' life-giving water to the thirsty people that we encounter. And then as Jesus prepared for his final journey to Jerusalem, we learned from a persistent blind beggar that people who are suffering don't interrupt what is important. Instead, they remind us of what is important. And then we watched as Jesus interrupted his own journey. He interrupted his journey when he looked up in a tree at a wee little man. And we learned that the outcasts of society aren't beyond the reach of Jesus. They're not beyond the reach of Jesus, who is the searching shepherd. And then last week we saw two brothers make a very bold bid to secure the premium seats in Jesus' kingdom. And there we learned that kingdom seats are really servant seats. They're seats that are reserved for those who submit. They're reserved for those who serve. And they do that instead of seeking out power and seeking out authority. And today we'll close the series with an encounter between Jesus and someone who had a great amount of power and a great amount of authority but as also someone who didn't want to accept the responsibility that came with his power and his authority. And before we look at that encounter, let's set the stage with a little bit of background information. As we pick up this story, we need to understand that Jesus and his disciples have completed that journey. They have gone from Jericho to Jerusalem. And now that they are in Jerusalem, the predictions that Jesus had repeatedly made to his disciples are coming true. He's been betrayed by Jesus. He's been condemned as a blasphemer by the Jewish ruling council, by the Sanhedrin. And he's been turned over to the Gentiles. Specifically, he's been turned over to the Roman governor, to Pontius Pilate. And he's been turned over to Pilate because the Sanhedrin doesn't have the authority and it doesn't have the power to execute Jesus. And they're looking for someone who does have that power and does have that authority. And that someone is Pilate. Pilate had absolute authority over non-Roman citizens in his territory. Non-Roman citizens like Jesus. So Jesus' fate as he encounters Pilate, his fate about whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die is very much resting in the hands of Pilate. We also need to understand that unlike most of the encounters that we have looked at, encounters between Jesus and other people, Pilate's encounter with Jesus is forced. His encounter with Jesus is unwelcome. It's not something that he was looking for. Pilate would have preferred that this encounter never occur. As Roman governor, he was really tasked with only two jobs. The first job was collecting sufficient money from the people to send to the Roman government. And the second job that he had was putting down any hint of unrest, putting down any hint of rebellion among the occupied people under his control. And Pilate is only encountering Jesus because Jesus was at the center of what was in danger of turning into a riot among the Jewish community who was under Pilate's control. And that Jewish community, to make certain that they had Pilate's full attention 
the leaders of that community, the Jewish leaders, presented Jesus to, them, to Pilate as someone who was not only a danger to the peace among the Jewish community, but an actual danger to Rome. They presented Jesus as someone who was a danger to Rome financially and a danger to Rome politically. Luke recorded it this way in chapter 23 in verse 1. He said, The whole assembly rose and led Jesus to Pilate. And they accused him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. And he opposes payments of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So as Jesus stood before Pilate, he stood accused of creating unrest among the Jewish community. And he stood accused of trying to cut off the flow of money to Rome by opposing taxes. And most importantly, he was accused of claiming to be a king. Claiming to be a king in a kingdom where Caesar ruled supreme. So with that as background, let's take a look at Jesus' face-to-face encounter with Pilate. We'll be reading from Matthew's account, Matthew 27. I'll start reading in verse 11, Matthew 27, 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. We see in the first part of this reading that Pilate quickly and shrewdly was able to distill all the accusations and all the chatter down to one pertinent question. The pertinent question that mattered to him and the question that mattered to Rome. And that question was Jesus really claiming to be competing royalty? Was he really claiming to be competing against Caesar? You see, Pilate cared about treason. He cared about anyone who was a threat to Roman rule. He cared about anyone who was a threat to Caesar's rule. And he certainly cared about anyone who was a threat to his rule. Under Pilate, not paying taxes would get you punished, but it wouldn't get you executed. Under Pilate, creating a disturbance in the Jewish community might get you punished, but it wouldn't get you executed. And since the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus killed, Pilate had to determine whether Jesus was actually a threat to Rome because that would get you executed. He needed to determine whether he was a threat to Rome or whether he was just a threat to the Jewish leaders. So the accusations are flying all around Jesus, and Jesus remains silent. And that amazes Pilate. He was amazed because Jesus wasn't acting like you would expect someone to act who was at risk of being put to death. He doesn't act like a desperate man. Jesus doesn't act like someone whose life is hanging in the balance, whose life is in the hands of Pilate. He doesn't make any alibis. He doesn't engage in any arguments. He doesn't make any counter accusations. His response is just silence. Clearly, there was something different about this man. So the question before Pilate is, what is he going to do about this different man? Verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas 
or Jesus, who is called the Christ. For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. So what did Pilate do with this different man? Well, in the best human and political tradition, he looked for a way out. He looked for a way to pass the buck. He looked for a way to get the results that he wanted without actually having to take any responsibility for an unpopular decision. So he decided to try to take advantage of what was apparently an annual tradition. An annual tradition of releasing one prisoner, a prisoner of the people's choice. Undoubtedly, this prisoner was usually someone who was some kind of sympathetic character. Maybe because the people thought he was unjustly accused. Maybe because people thought that there were extenuating circumstances to his particular crime. Or maybe because he had a particularly large or loving family. But something that made him a sympathetic figure. But Barabbas wasn't a sympathetic figure. But this was done as Pilate tried to gain the favor of the people every year by releasing one prisoner. So this time he gives the people a choice. A people gives the people a choice between two different prisoners. The notorious criminal Barabbas, who was actually guilty of treason against Rome, or releasing Jesus, who was falsely accused of inciting rebellion against Rome. And I think that Pilate offered such a stark choice because he had correctly judged that the case against Jesus was motivated by the religious leader's own self-interest. Pilate knew that Jesus hadn't been brought to him because they were actually concerned for Rome's interest. He knew that Jesus didn't actually present a threat to Caesar. He knew that in reality this was a family dispute that had been brought before him. In the third chapter of Acts, Peter captured what was really going on in this encounter when he said this to the Jewish community. He said to them, You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Disowned him before Pilate. Disowning someone is the language of a problem child, a way to sever ties between a parent and problem children. Disowning somebody. Jesus did present problems. But the problems weren't for the Roman government. The problems were for the Jewish establishment. And all of this was obvious to Pilate. And that's why he was looking for a way out. But before any decisions about Jesus could be made, Pilate then comes under some increasing and some competing pressure. And that just made his decision even more difficult. Verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat... His wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. You see the competing pressure. First, there's pressure from his wife's message about her dream. And make no mistake, this is significant pressure. Not just because it came from his wife, but because Pilate lived in a society that gave a lot more credence to the results of dreams than 
Our society does. Our time does. So the message that his wife sent to him wasn't taken lightly by Pilate. And it confirmed Pilate's judgment of the situation. Jesus is an innocent man. And you know that her warning have nothing to do with that innocent man had to add to Pilate's discomfort, had to add to the pressure that he felt to let this innocent man go. So the pressure on Pilate to find a way out of this is even greater than it was before. But there's another pressure. There's the pressure from the opposite direction, and it was also increased. And this pressure had nothing to do with rationally determine whether Jesus was guilty or innocent. It had nothing to do with rationally determine whether it was a good idea to release Barabbas. The pressure on Pilate from the other side had everything to do with emotion. And the religious leaders, as they understood Pilate's fear of unrest and Pilate's fear of disorder among the people, they chose to try to overwhelm reason with emotion, with emotional volume. Back when I used to play a lot of pickup basketball, we had a saying when we were out on the courts, he who yells the loudest wins. And we said that because invariably any argument about rules violations that came up went in favor of the person who was willing to invest the most emotionally, invest the most in volume. The person who was willing to yell the loudest to get their way invariably got their way. Not because they were right, but because they were emotional and because they were loud. And that's the tactic that the religious leaders chose. They couldn't win this argument based on reason, but there was a good chance they could win it based on emotion. There was a good chance that they would get their way because the last thing that Pilate wanted was an emotionally fueled riot on his hands. Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. For Pilate, there's no easy way out. There was significant pressure from both sides. And Pilate is forced to decide between doing what was right for an innocent man, or doing what it would take to appease the angry crowd. And as we know, Pilate chose appeasement. Pilate chose the side of the angry crowd. He who yelled the loudest won. The Jewish leaders got exactly what they thought they wanted. And Pilate got a satisfied crowd. But he also got a troubled conscience. A troubled conscience because he knew that the guilty man was being set free and the innocent man was going to be killed. And no one wants to be responsible for something like that. So when Pilate symbolically washed his hands in front of the crowd, it's his attempt to show that the decision to release Barabbas and to crucify Jesus was beyond his control. And because it was beyond his control, he was trying to demonstrate to the crowd, and maybe more importantly, he was trying to demonstrate to himself that Barabbas' freedom and Jesus' death just aren't his responsibility. But the crowd has a very different response and a very different attitude. As they're spurred on by the religious leaders, they show no qualms 
about taking responsibility. And in this we see the shocking depth of their animosity and the depth of their fear. Their animosity towards Jesus and their fear of Jesus. And it's revealed in their willingness to take on themselves what Pilate was trying to wash off. They're willing to take on the responsibility for the death of Jesus. So as we seek to learn from this encounter for our own lives, there's a few different things that we could do. We could shine a light on the religious leaders and we could draw any number of lessons and applications from their behavior. Or we could shine a light on the emotional crowds and we could draw any number of lessons and implications and applications from their behavior. But instead, what I want to do is end by focusing that light, by shining that light on Pilate and his behavior to see what discipleship lessons we can learn from Pilate's face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And I think the first thing that we learn from Pilate is that it's impossible to remain neutral when you encounter Jesus Christ. Jesus demands acceptance or rejection. Jesus is either king or he's not. He's either Christ or he's not. He's either God in the flesh or he is not. He's either the Lord of our lives or he is not. There's no middle ground with Jesus. And Pilate found it impossible when he tried to walk that middle ground. See, if Pilate had accepted Jesus as Lord and Master, he would have behaved in a very different way. But instead, he accepted him as an innocent man. And when you accept someone as an innocent man, that man doesn't lay claim to your life. He doesn't lay claim to your actions. Just as accepting Jesus as a good man does not lay claim to your life and does not lay claim to your actions. Even accepting Jesus as a great teacher or as a prophet from God does not lay claim to your life. It does not lay claim to your actions. Encountering Jesus demands that we either claim him as our way. We claim him as our truth. We claim him as our life. Or we reject him. And we reject any claim that he might have on our life and on our actions. Secondly, we learn from Pilate that serving Jesus will often require the ignoring of emotional crowds. Ignoring the emotional crowds. As disciples of Jesus, we can't allow he who yells loudest to win. We live in a world of competing noise and it's at an unbelievable volume. But we need to keep in mind that there's only one voice that really matters. There's one voice that drowns out all others, and it's not drowning out others by volume, but by authority. And that's the voice of God, the voice of his son, Jesus Christ, the voice of the Spirit of God. And that voice drowns out all others because that voice belongs to God. And not only must we ignore the noise of the crowd, but serving Jesus requires us to ignore the oftentimes louder noise of our own self-interest. Like Pilate, frequently our greatest temptation is to do what we think is best for us. To make our lives all about us. To let our desires drive our behaviors. But Jesus calls on us to live a life lived not for ourselves, but a life lived for him and a life lived for others. 
And if we'll do that, if we'll live our lives for him and live our lives for others, he has promised to take care of our needs. And he's promised to watch out for our interests. And finally, we learn from Pilate's encounter with Jesus that we can't wash our hands of responsibility of doing what we know is the right thing to do. Pilate knew that setting Jesus free was the right thing to do. But he didn't do it, and he didn't want the responsibility that came along with setting him free. And I don't know about you, but that, unfortunately, is frequently a pretty good description of me, a pretty good description of my behavior. Oftentimes, I'm someone who often knows the right thing to do, but doesn't do it and doesn't want responsibility for not doing it. And if you're like me, you don't actually go to the sink and wash your hands of the responsibility of doing what you know is the right thing to do. But maybe you do what I do. Maybe you, like me, try to wash your hands of responsibility in the water of busyness. I couldn't do what I knew was the right thing to do because I was too busy. I just didn't have the time. Or maybe, like me, you try to wash your hands in the water of inadequacy. I couldn't do what I knew was right because I'm not smart enough, or I'm not wise enough, or I'm not experienced enough, or I'm not old enough, or I'm not young enough. I'm not whatever enough. Or maybe, like me, sometimes you wash your hands of responsibility in the water of comfort. I couldn't do what I knew was right because it was outside my comfort zone. It made me uncomfortable. Or maybe, like me, you wash your hands of responsibility in the water of opinion. I couldn't do what I knew was the right thing to do because of what other people might think about me. The water of opinion. But as disciples of Jesus Christ... As a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am called. As disciples of Jesus Christ, you are called to replace those waters with the water of service. Remember the words of Jesus after he washed his disciples' feet. He said, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So as Jesus' disciples, we won't be identified by our clean hands, our clean hands that we have washed of responsibility. No, we'll be identified by the clean feet of the people who are around us. Feet that are clean because we each take responsibility for serving the needs of each other. Not recognized by the clean hands that have been washed of responsibility, but recognized by the clean feet Because those feet have been washed by each other as we serve each other's needs. So, as we end this series of face-to-face encounters with Jesus, I also want to remind us that we all come face-to-face with Jesus. And we come face-to-face with Jesus repeatedly, frequently. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, Jesus presents a picture of his return to judge the world. It's a picture of a king seated on a throne who's separating out the righteous and the unrighteous like a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. 
In verse 34, Jesus says this. He says, The king will say to the righteous, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. For me, this provides a much-needed reminder that I, a much-needed reminder that we are continually having our own face-to-face encounters with Jesus. We come face-to-face with Jesus disguised as our brothers and sisters who have physical and emotional needs. And as Jesus' disciples, as the king's disciples, we have to decide, will we wash our hands of the responsibility or will we serve Jesus by serving each other, by washing each other's feet. Washing each other's feet by providing things like food and drink and clothing and comfort and time and attention. So as we close this series, my prayer, even my dream, is that everyone will know that this church that Netherwood Park is made up of Jesus' disciples. And they will know that because they can see that we are a church of clean feet, not of clean hands. So my invitation to you is to join me in a commitment to be the kind of disciples that lead to that kind of church. A church with clean feet, but not clean hands. And also I want to say, if you're here this morning, and you would like to join us as we follow our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in lives of service, won't you let us know that that's your desire? You can do that in a couple of different ways. We're going to stand up and we're going to sing a song. You can walk to the front and let us know what your desires, what your needs are. Or if you're more comfortable, you can walk to the back. In a more private setting, there'll be a couple of men in room 104 who would love to help you in your desire to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Whatever your needs are, won't you let us know while we stand up and while we sing this song together.